0: Welcome to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. We're your hosts, Abby
1: and Chris. You'll hear informative discussions full of valuable expertise and actionable insight on the issues you face when launching and growing your startup.
0: This is episode 14 of the Radical Departures podcast. Our guest today is Jean-François Moriseur, founder and CEO of CHI Labs, a team of 30 people who build innovative photonic solutions to harness the full potential of optical fibers. In this episode, Jean-François tells us about his journey from a fundamental physics researcher to founding his startup, which they've grown very successfully over the past four years, and highlights some of the choices the company has made to win major contracts and put their solutions into use in places around the world. So, without further ado, here's episode 14 with Jean-François Moriseur.
1: Today, we're here with Jean-François. Jean-François, perhaps you want to give us a, an introduction to yourself and, uh, and the company.
2: So, I'm Jean-François Moriseur. I'm the CEO of Kailabs. Kailabs is an optical component company. And what we do is we design, uh, manufacture and sell uh, innovative optical components. Uh, So it may sound a little bit something hidden, and it is, and it's a bit difficult to explain to people what we actually do, but we've got something that reshapes light. So we're very good at reshaping light. We actually are the best in the world at reshaping light. One thing that makes me say that we're the best in the world at reshaping light is is the fact that we've got uh, telecom companies doing world records with our components, 10 petabit per second in fiber, or the fact that we can uh, deploy that uh, in um, uh, factories, in uh, hospitals, and increase the fiber capacity by a factor of 400 or more. So this is what we bring to the table as a company.
1: Obviously, this is a really technical offering here. How did you come up with the idea? How did you get started? Were you doing research? Where did the process
2: start? So the process started actually not with the fibers, not in telecom, not in data. Uh, we started in, in quantum optics. And the idea, in the, we were in a quantum optics lab. I was doing my PhD. And um, the lab was called, is called uh, Laboratoire castler It's in, uh, in Paris. There was this uh, knowledge about dealing with the shape of the light. Uh, the, in, in a quantum optics uh, field, we call it spatial modes. And then basically we worked on that, we found out a few uh, new ideas, we filed some patents, and then we found out that this was useful for telecom. So really it was in that order. First, going a deep dive in fundamental physics, and then basically one day finding out that this is actually useful at some point in an optical fiber. And that was fun. To actually jump to this uh, direction.
1: How long did that process take to discover? You were working on one thing, and then, hey, this this here's a really good practical application. I
2: wouldn't call it breakthrough, but like main improvement that w- that made it possible for this kind of new kind of reshaping uh, was done in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. But we started working on telecom in two thousand twelve. Yeah, two years. Yeah, it was uh, just talking to people, trying to. Uh, at the beginning, we thought this was something useful for microscopy or things like that, which, to be honest, we've been there, I've been working on this field for now quite some time. It's clearly not useful. <laughs> Maybe in beam trapping, but it's clearly not not useful in microscopy.
1: Now, in, in your lab, were most of the people doing the research, were you French? Were people, were researchers from all over the place?
2: So in the lab, it was mainly French people. Uh, there were some uh, foreigners in the lab. The, this typical work, though, was done in collaboration with the Australian National University. So my PhD was between France and Australia. So I, g- I, g- I got back and forth. So it's actually a simplification to say, an oversimplification to say that it's, it was all done at the Laboratoire Castelar Right. But, I mean, for example, in the, in the patent filing, there is uh, the Australian National University, the University Pierre Marie Curie, which is the entity that uh, goes with the Laboratoire Castelar and the CNRS, and the Collège de France, and I think that's all. So it's a, a, it's already a lot of people actually uh, on this. How did you go
1: from you discovered there are some practical applications in the telecom world to
2: actually moving into that? Was there some kind of connection in the lab or? At, at that point, it was, um, I would say, some bit more personal story. What happened is I left research uh, to go uh, work at the Boston Consulting Group. Very, very interesting experience. I was going from fundamental physics and then you... It's a, a, a big jump into economics and uh, into, well, I would say, company improvement. While I was at BCG, uh, we, there was this moment when we felt the field maturing a little bit in terms of telecom. So there was more interest and there was some, the, the ability for the lab to get some funding on this field to actually explore this direction. So when we talked with Nicola, who was the professor involved in, uh, in this work, we actually shaped this beginning where he got a little bit of funding to actually explore this direction, uh, he asked me whether I wanted to go back to the university to actually do this, and I said yes, but on the condition that we would look into making a startup out of it, not just take this result and then go and work to with, with Nokia or Alcatel.
1: And what, is there any connection, any formal connection between the university and the startup, or it's just? A...
2: Yes, there is. The part of the um, at the startup, sorry, uh, the starting phase. Uh, the university granted us the a license on the patents, uh, universal, like a lot of, yeah, very good contract. And they took shares in the company. Oh, cool. So that that's the, the, the quick pro quo.
1: All right. So that works well for everyone.
2: It works well. And I think this is something we should actually uh, emphasize. It's a very good way for a university to get transfer patents or uh, transfer IP to a startup. Taking shares is good. You don't take cash in. Today, the amount of money, I mean, since then, K Labs evolved, and in 2013, 2017, we've got a lot of growth, and now 30 people, we raised 8.6 million, so it's it's much bigger. So now we are less sensitive to cash, or we are still very sensitive, but not as much as when you start. And when you start, if you've got a university saying, okay, I want cash back now, it's it's extremely difficult. Uh, And we were really lucky that the people working with us were saying, okay, no, we're okay with that. We want shares in your company, we trust you in that, and that's how it's going to work.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. Now, when you started to talk to the telecoms, was your first beta customer, were they here in France?
2: Yeah, so the first customers we got were Alcatel, clearly. I mean, the first systems we actually made them as a prototype it was not sold, but you know, shipped to them. I remember going with my, my co-founder, Scar, Guillaume was also the co-founder uh, at K-Labs. You joined me when we were at the lab to actually do this. And we had these um, these two uh, prototypes in the in the trunk of the car with uh, <laughs> wrapping, you know, the kitchen wrapping paper, the transparent <laughs> stuff, to make sure they protect from dust. Was, yeah. Okay. It was it was fun. So yeah, they got the very prototype versions. Like it's not even beta customers, it's probably alpha or pre-alpha, or whatever. And then yes, there were uh, good customers from the beginning, and then we 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 did a more uh, structured collaborative project with them starting in 2013, I think and what we are working on with Alcatel is data center interconnect okay uh, so the question how can you scale up bandwidth between data centers without it being too expensive and one of the approach we have is trying not to use coherent light in telecom and standard optical fiber you're going to use basically simplest way to carry information is to you know turn on and off the light 1010 zero, zero. Then you use multiple wavelengths, multiple colors, so to superpose multiple channels, so you got a lot of okay. And then from that point, you can actually go even beyond that and go to coherent light. Mm-hmm. But a coherent transmitter and receivers are actually rather expensive. So one of the challenges we have is using the shape of the light as we bring in so of, to avoid using coherent transmitter and receiver. Okay. So in terms of equations, it's actually a little bit less costly. You have to change and use a different kind of fibers, but in this kind of specific deployment, it's okay. So this is the kind of thing we explore with, with Nokia, talking about them Alcatel, Nokia, because Nokia bought Alcatel, so nowadays we should, we should say Nokia. Right. <laughs> when a customer buys, when they
1: buy from you, what's the reason why do they buy? What, is it, is it a, a huge cost savings? Is there, what's the specific reason? So, or maybe there are multiple
2: reasons. It, so it depends on the customer. We've got a, a class of customer that would, I would say are labs. And labs, what they're doing is they're just exploring. Mm-hmm. At the moment, I think in terms of publications, there was uh, there are two big uh, conferences in our field, optical communication. Uh, one is uh, ECOC European Conference of Optical Communication. The other one is Optical Fiber Conference in the US. And um, last ECOC, there were I think 54 percent of the talks about shaping light in the fibers. We're done with our product, mm-hmm. nice. so we're quite happy. Nice. <laughs> nice. That's, so that's, what it cool. means is, uh, people in the labs use them because it allows them to leverage to to leverage the shape of the light in the fiber in different ways and exploring. And we are always amazed by what people come in and say, "Okay, can you actually do this transform?" It's like, wow! Okay, we never thought about it. And sometimes they want to tell us why. Sometimes we discover when they publish the paper. Sometimes <laughs> we never discover, and there's, there's still we're still like thinking about, okay, why would they want this kind of shape? But yes, this is kind of exploration. And then from that point, it starts to be integration. So once you've uh, tested, then you start to say, okay, I want to build a solution with that. And then we've got integration contract. One of the biggest examples today is Safran. Safran is on the, on the aircraft cabling part. We were working with them since early 2016, I think. And um, they tested first, so a few prototypes. And now we've got a more structured contract. The idea is to be able to use the shape of the light to actually go beyond what's available today in the aircraft. There's a few advantages. I, I, I cannot really go into details there right. because it's confidential. But, And what's really interesting is this is what led Saffron to actually lead the latest VC round that we got in ah. K-Labs. So we raised $5 million, Yeah, in July this year. Saffron Corporate Venture was the lead investor on this. Uh, it's related to uh, the aircraft cabling part not just that but it's it's part of it this is kind of the way we sh- we see how business is going and on the other side we've got this um, same kind of product but different package i would say for the day to day upgrades imagine you're a university uh, infrastructure manager or a hospital infrastructure manager or factory infrastructure manager you've got already fibers there 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 but they they can be your limiting factor today um Some fibers actually won't go above uh, 100 megabit per second or 1 gigabit per second. And you want 10 gig. I mean, today, uh, 90% of the uh, transceivers shipped, so emitters and receivers uh, shipped are 10 gig. So your fibers are going to be a limiting factor. So one option you have is changing the fiber. But it's uh, usually, think about you're in hospital, the, the work that you need to remove a fiber and put a new one, that's actually a big problem. So um, what we we just put our box at the end of the fiber, and then we expand the capacity by four hundred. So in this situation, it's not integration. It's really the benefit is immediate, and yes, you've got cost saving, but it's such a reduction in complexity that that's I think that's a key benefit uh, in the process. We've just done installation in a factory uh, yesterday, and I think just for us to get in and do the installation was actually hours of paperwork and stuff like that. But imagine if you needed to actually, I mean, to dig a hole there. It would have been crazy years, probably, of paperwork. So this is, I mean, it, it's, it's, and it makes sense. It's a chemical plant, and so you have to be very careful. But, yes, it's it's something that, um, this, this is where we, we bring value, I think, today, not just in labs, not just integration, but today in uh, kind of normal local networks. Today, we K-Labs, we're addressing bottlenecks. And I don't think there is bottleneck, Really, in the the backbone of Orange, a backbone mm-hmm. of SFR uh, in France, or AT and T Verizon in the U.S., there might be some points, but they're pretty sure they have solutions to that. What we're seeing is there there are technical real technical bottlenecks in the networks, are located in specific places, and this is where we we work. So it's quite funny that the local network can be a bottleneck, because it's it's very low uh, data rates. So you think you think okay, it's all right. This one is okay. But the thing is, there's a whole generation of fiber that was deployed basically from the 90s to 2010. Mm-hmm. That was basically the that was the cheapest solution to get some bandwidth. But it was a good alternative to copper, I would say. Right. But it wouldn't wasn't uh, the, uh, the a state of the art telecom fiber at that point, which made sense because it was 10 times cheaper to actually use the the transceivers for that fiber it was 10 times cheaper than transceivers for telecom. So yeah, it, it made total sense. But today. We're helping these people with this kind of installed fiber get beyond that. So apart from this kind of bottleneck, there's the bottleneck in the mobile antennas. Uh, some mobile antennas have the same kind of fiber, multi-mode fiber, in the antennas, and we can address that. Uh, that was kind of a, a fun process. Apart from that, we've got integration projects for 5G. We've got, we're working on sub um, subsea, so places where in the Orange Network there would be some Elements to improve, but for the stand fiber, it's it's okay. I right. think uh, we we shouldn't say. Sometimes, sometimes we've seen that in uh, in in the website that there's a capacity crunch in um, of an internet because there's such an increase in uh, the data rates and data demand that there's the network cannot keep up. I don't see that coming in the very short term. Uh, what I see is bottom, small bottlenecks. <laughs> and what
1: triggers those bottlenecks within these internal networks? Is it the type of applications that are being developed, what's causing that problem, and I'm sure it's many things. Yeah, but... it's,
2: it is. But it's, it's an interesting question. I think that I would say two drive. I would see two drivers uh, behind that. It's sometimes it's market drivers. Say you've got a data center uh, operator, a web scale data center operator. The amount of data they have to move is crazy. So they want to locate in a city because they want to be close to their customers. And if they're located in a city, they cannot be located at just one spot you have to build in some kind of redundancy. And so you have to have two data centers replicated, typically 15, 20 kilometers away, even more, even less, depending yeah. on. So at that point, there's no way Orange designed a fiber there that could handle this kind of traffic. That That's market driven. Like you, you're basically you're generating bottleneck because you decide to go there. I mean, there's no way you would have an operator saying, okay, I know in these fields, people are going to put two data centers no so beforehand you don't have the capacity you bring in the data centers you need this capacity that's one kind of bottleneck that comes in another kind of bottleneck is more technical if you look at subsea for example it's clearly today it's a technical bottleneck it's not a market one nowadays you've got a uh, big web scale actors who can actually purchase the full almost transatlantic cable by themselves and they want to have better solution they want to have um, faster links and they want to change, shift a little bit the, the equation of cost and capacity. And in this, these ones, um, it's really technical. Right. It's really about not choosing the standard solution.
1: And when you're going into these client discussions, who in the organization do you typically talk to? Who's buying your product? Same thing. And
2: uh, there's, sorry, it's a little about, it depends. Right. <laughs> yeah. But say you're, you're going for the uh, local network guys. In there, there's just the infrastructure manager, and this guy buys from a network integrator. So we never sell to the infrastructure manager, or very rarely. Uh, We sell to an integrator Mm -hmm. because the integrator brings in both the new components but also the knowledge and the integration inside their existing network. And it means that the infrastructure manager, they have somebody to call if there's a problem in their network. So it's part of the full package. That's very typical. So what we do in this, if we're talking about local network, is... We go to conferences, we do some advertising a little bit. We go to meet people and tell them this solution exists. Simply it exists. That's the new new part. In terms of cost, it's so much cheaper that there's no question. So this we say, if you've got a project like that, don't forget about us. Okay? Think about it. Ask your integrator. Once we've got uh, projects like that, we ask them, who is your typical integrator? And then we arrange with the integrator. We do a small meeting. We tell them, okay, this is the solution. This is how you install it. Either we do it, either you do it. We don't care. And then we go forward. So that's kind of the typical sales process. Now, for the big companies, we come in through the technical side. So really, we typically talk with the, so first the R&D team, then they go to the advanced product teams and then move again to uh some product line manager to actually say, okay, do we want to integrate that in the overall solutions? And the thickness of the contracts gets bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end, you involve uh, purchasing departments in terms of volumes. But it's really a process. So um, it's perhaps the R and D
1: director that will do the sign off.
2: For I'm just curious who oh, because oh, your, your product.
1: <laughs> I'm assuming it's not a cheap product because it's a pretty. It's such an important part of their infrastructure.
2: So in the R and D part, there is nothing cheap. Because in R&D, it's always custom. It's always something very uh, specific. It's always something that, you know, the guy comes in and says, okay, we want this, this, and this. And then there's imperfect knowledge, and there's going to be loops and so on. So in the R&D environment, yes, there's a cost, basically. Something like non-recoverable engineering, but, you know, this kind of setting up cost. Then when you think about volume, it depends on the target. This kind of solution is not that expensive. compared, As you said, compared to the rest of the network, it's actually rather cheap. When you see switches that go uh, tens of thousands of euros, our systems do not go to tens of thousands of euros. It's mm. less than that. So in terms of if the value is there, uh, there's no question we will be able to be there and provide the, the right components. I don't want to give precise prices, but sure, it's sure. never been a, a roadblock in the process. And we're very transparent with our partners. Say, okay, we want to work with you, but just make sure that the price target is going to be this. And we will not ask for 10 times more than that. And you will not get 10 times less than that so you said you just raised
0: another 5 million yeah what's next for you guys where are you building out
2: so at the moment our target is we've got two integration programs running uh three more in the pipelines we want to convert these three into uh three running with contract signed and so on we have a scale up in terms of sales and production on the local network line of product and on this one we just got word that we won a big bidding contract. We are very happy that this the scale is going to come with that in the next few months. The problem for us is going to be keeping up with demand. We are looking, starting to look abroad on the local network side. We've done it a lot in France, starting to be well-established in France. And we started to get uh, first uh, demands from the U.S., so incoming calls and stuff like that from the U.S., school districts, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite, quite funny. Because we did a few conferences, there's um, an association in the U.S. called Big C. It's absolutely amazing, and Big C is a group of professionals, of engineers that actually do deployments in cables and stuff like that. And uh, we don't have the equivalent in France, not at that level. This Big C tries to open that, uh, actually has a, a small presence in France, but not as big as what they do in the U.S. And for us, Big C is a it's a godsend in the U.S. It's very very good. A lot of people that we met. I think there was a conference in Las Vegas, and we had two people from K-Labs there, and they told me that. They had a booth. 90% of the people who came to the booth actually had the problem that we could solve. And we never got as many contacts as we had in that three days. So it was just amazing. So I think the U.S. is probably on the roadmap for 2018. The way we will do it is going to be complicated, but Mm. it's on the roadmap.
1: So you would look at the U.S. perhaps either a direct presence or partner
2: to get your... We already have partners. We have distributors of today, and the question is if you want to scale up, it's going to be a uh, presence to support the in our marketing side, so to support the distributors, mm-hmm. and also on the technical side, pre-sales engineers, mm-hmm. and then uh, installation support. Same thing as we do in France, but do that also in the U.S.
1: Now, there's a, always a big debate here in Europe when you go over to the U.S. when you open up in the U.S., some people are completely in favor of The west coast some people completely in favor of the east coast we're both east coast people so uh, although you lived on the west coast the east coast i find much easier because it's only six hours apart how do you view that process
2: we had exactly the same reasoning all the conferences on the west coast we've got partners in the west coast Uh, one of the board members of k labs actually goes back and forth between the west coast and europe it's very difficult to keep up you end up with two teams i would say are very independent and that's a problem Uh, east coast is Extremely efficient. We were in, in New York for Impact in June last year. Impact is a program from uh, BPI to actually in, increase and, and get us on the ground in the US and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And this led to Big C, so this led to the, all these results. I was doing back and forth between New York and France, and we actually were raising the rounds. So it was a little bit tiring. And it worked. I was able to do it. And I think that as, as, as far as I'm concerned, that's it means that, yes, it's possible to have a team in the East Coast, and team in Europe, <laughs> And keep something together. I don't think it's possible in the West Coast. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, today I would I not feel secure on that. I think it's, it's more than the it's the very limited overlap, which means that yeah. you have to dedicate basically the end of your day systematically to talk to the guys on with uh, this kind of time difference. So in Japan, it's easier because what Japanese teams work with the time difference is a little bit lower, and it's not Kailabs, It's a distributor, so mm-hmm. it's we are around the meeting. It's a bit more formal. It, it works better. West Coast, yes, it's difficult.
1: Do you find outside of, when you go outside of France, whether it's Japan, whether it's the US, the UK, wherever, do you find some markets are easier, as a a young company, as a startup, are some markets easier than other markets to get your, sort of, dip your toes in the water and get going?
2: On the technical side, Japan was amazing for us. I cannot really answer your question in a general sense. But on the um, for us, Japan was great. It's a very great market in technical integration. We very good partnerships with KDDI, with NTT, with NEC. It's very interesting stuff we've done with them. US is very easy to understand. It's a market that is, it's kind of amazing in the sense that uh, language is not never a buyer. You meet people. There's okay. There's cultural barrier, but it's not that significant. Even compared to different between countries in Europe, for example. U.S. is amazing in terms of it's a bit more difficult because in the U.S. people will refuse to go through a distributor if they can go in direct to you. Yeah. And so you have to be, be very careful to protect your distributors if you want to work in this kind of frame. Uh, while in Japan, for example, big companies need distributors to do the imports and stuff like that. So there's this kind of symbiotic relationship. We found China is extremely difficult. We've got demands there and we ship products there, but it's we've got very little visibility and it's really based on their demands rather than us pushing it. Because developing any, I mean for us having teams there and it's very difficult to read the market, to read whether people are interested or not and stuff like that. So it's a one, difficult one. South America, we haven't done much there. Africa, not much either. Europe, it's easy. <laughs> Coming from France. I think it's the proximity is amazing. The ability to go to see your clients during the day, oh, that's really, really good. We've got partners in Holland uh, and being able to go from Rennes to... I mean, I dropped my little daughter at the nanny at 8.30 in the morning and I was able to go to visit the clients in Holland and be back to actually see her to bed, which was... I think that That's good. That's the easiest client meeting possible. <laughs> you had talked about
1: what sounds to me like a bit of evangelizing, because you have to go out and explain, Mm -hmm. which usually suggests it's not an established market, it's a very new market, because I've walked in those shoes many times. Do you have any competition at
2: all? So when I was talking about evangelizing, I was thinking about local network part. Mm -hmm. In this field, typically people change the fibers. So there is an established solution which is ripping out the old fiber and deploying a new expensive one. Expensive and long. Exactly. You can leave the fiber uh, in there and put a new one next to it, but it's still expensive and long, as you said. And there's an individual evangelization saying, okay, you already have an alternative. You already know what it is. You have the cost. You actually have the quotes, to be honest. When we come in, you already have the quotes. And we come in and say, okay, yeah, we are three times, five times cheaper than that than you, the actual quote you have in your hands. So you are looking to buy this one with 15,000 euros. Okay, I mean, you can make it significantly cheaper with our product. Why are you hesitating? So evangelization is, is about this is a new solution. Can we trust it? So we have to make people, let them know about the solution, make sure they know they're aware that it exists. And then we have to make sure that they trust it, that they say, okay, yeah, people have been doing this for 10 years before me. As they've been changing the fiber. Why would I move to this new stuff and then, so what we need to bring in is track record. So we have to bring in, okay, we've done this in there and this place, and this is the result. This, we've done in this place as a result. We save them X and Y amount of money. One deployment was very funny in Les Arc, in ski resorts. The alternative was to use a helicopter to deploy <laughs> the fiber. When your alternative is in a helicopter, it's actually quite easy to beat <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> but that's an exceptional case, okay? If you want to look at what we see today is the factories. Factories, it's extremely expensive to change the fibers and very complex, especially when the factory is running or when there's chemicals, there's things like that. And in this field, trust is the issue. Can they trust us? Can this investor to manager trust us? If he can trust us, then we are solving a big problem for him. But if he cannot trust us, it's not a solution. So we have to tell this guy, okay, we are backed by Saffron, so we're going to be there. And if Saffron trusts us for critical solutions, you can probably trust us for your factory. Furthermore, I mean, we've done this in this car manufacturer, in this steel manufacturer, and here are the contacts. If you want to call them, call them. And then you build on that. What's really interesting is it's absolutely not linear. So the more results you have, the more feedback you get, the more validation you have, the faster it is. And we've seen that picking up. and it's actually kind of a bit scary because we were a little bit, the latency at the beginning was very slow, very. but now you've got, wow, people coming in and say, okay, yeah, we've got this deployment, this deployment, this deployment. It's like, okay, yeah, we now we need to be able to not be the one that makes it linear. <laughs> Exponential hmm. it is. Yeah. Why are you
0: guys not located in Paris?
2: So, I mean, the lab is in Paris. We are doing manufacturing. Part of what we do is building the components themselves. This requires room. You don't want to be limited by, by room. So... We couldn't be in the centre of Paris for that reason. And in our business, we need room. And in centre of Paris, you cannot get that easily or cheaply. You can go outside in suburbs, but the outskirts of Paris in terms of attractivity is not as, it's not as good. If you go to talk to Parisians and ask them what they think about the Saclay Plateau or um, Courtauld, places like that, Yeah, it's not doesn't send out a dream. Um, so what we decided to do is go in a, a, a city centre. Not too far from Paris, because there's a TGV, and now it's uh, 1 hour and 20 minutes from Paris to Rennes. So it's it's very convenient. We've got, everybody's living either outside in a nice house with big garden or inside the city. I live personally inside the city, and I've got a house in the city, which I could never be able to afford a house in Paris. It doesn't exist, probably. Or oh, it does, but it's, yeah, I clearly cannot afford that. So this is the lifestyle that we get in Rennes is amazing. And this allows us to bring in more people and have people that love it. They love the lifestyle. They love the fact that they can work on world-class projects, world-class problems in Rennes, a very comfortable environment. If we want to scale up at the moment, we've got 900 square meters. That would be our biggest cost if we were in Paris in terms of just rent. And today we actually think about, okay, do we need to expand? When can we, when we do need to expand? Maybe next year. And it's possible. So this is really, Rennes was the room and lifestyle that you can bring and not too far from Paris. We actually looked into Lille, Lyon, Nantes, a lot of cities, and we finalized on Rennes because they've got a, a telecom history. And so if there are people who already know what the telecom market is, and it, it helped us in the past. This was how we chose. But really, the center of Paris was very really attractive, but it's not possible to do what we do in there.
0: So you may have already partially answered our last Mm -hmm. question, but how do you define success?
2: For K-Labs, I think it's a win-win-win. There are three parties that need to win in K-Labs. Investors, clients, and employees. And my job is to make sure that we find a balance. We reach this balance. We bring it forward. And success is meant when everybody's happy. Everybody's happy to be part of this adventure. Uh, There's not one party that says, okay, I'm winning against all the others. Uh, It's really about Everybody moving in the same direction. What successful collabs is generating an enormous amount of value for salary, for, for employees, for investors, and for clients. This is what we want to do. This generating enormous amount of value. It doesn't. We're not about capturing the value. We're not about stealing it from somebody else and stuff like that. We what we believe in is with our work, with our technology, we can solve problems solve important problems we've got reasons to believe that we're on this track and this is the value we wanted to create we want to solve this problem we want to create this value and then it's going to be shared that's the success for k-labs on the personal side success for me is living an adventure and this k-labs is an adventure it's a uh, growth is typically a three digit growth year after year after year so you're changing everything changes uh, year after year after year and you've got new challenges new difficulties New stuff. And this is what I love. Sometimes I need to, you know, when you've got so many problems, you're like, wow, well, too much. And then you have to take a step back and say, okay, I want to be there. I want to be doing that. I like it. The worst thing for me is uh, be bored. This is something I cannot, it's very difficult for me to live in this kind of environment. I tend to flee environments where I'm bored. And Kailabs is the opposite of being bored.
0: Cool. Excellent.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: wraps up another episode of the Radical Departures podcast. Thanks for listening.
1: Subscribe to our feed on iTunes.
0: And join us next time on Radical Departures.